Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the sixth week of our series on Matthew chapters 10 and 11 called Offensive Love. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, we are in the study of, of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're looking at, at Jesus and his teaching. And, and this morning, we're really looking at not just all of his disciples, but to, specifically to John the Baptist. And so we're gonna be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses one through six. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it up and to, to leave it open throughout our time so that you see, you can constantly go back and see the text there and where the points come from. Uh, but let me begin by reading the passage that we're gonna be looking at, Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse one. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his, by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege this time and the opportunity that we have to come and to be able to dive into your word. Father, to, to hear these words of, of Jesus that, that we're not only speaking to John a couple thousand years ago, but Father, that speak to us and speak to our, our doubts and our, our concerns and, and our confusion. Father, I pray that you would now speak through me. Father, that your word would go forth and that your Holy Spirit would use me and work in spite of me. And Father, help each one of us, no matter what we've come in here with, to have hearts that are open to hear and understand and receive and respond to what you're gonna call us to today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, have you ever come to the point in, in your life where you just don't understand what God is doing. You don't see him, it doesn't make sense. Uh, yes, you know in your mind that God's in control, but you don't see that goodness, you don't see his control. And, and if you're there, I wanna tell you, you're not alone. I know at times that when we go through those periods of, of crisis, of doubt, of, um, of, of confusion, we often feel like we're alone. And one of the reasons is, is that we feel that that, that doubt is kind of a kind of a form of spiritual failure. And so we don't want to admit to other people that we're struggling or that we're doubting. And as a result, nobody ever talks about it. So then when we go through it, we feel like we're the only ones that experience it. In reality, all of us do. In fact, when you look at not only you know, history, but you look at the Bible, what you find is that it's not even something that's limited to those that are spiritually immature or those that are young. Even spiritual giants will go through these seasons of doubt. So for example, uh, one of the great heroes of the modern missions movement from the last century was a woman named uh, Gladys Allward. And she was this missionary that was from England that she had gone to China uh, during, you know, before the Second World War. And she was a spiritual giant. And many of us have never heard of Gladys Allward. And, but the fact is, is in her time, she actually was a very well-known name. Uh, she wrote a book about what she had done, and the book was, was actually so well-received and such an incredible story that Hollywood made a major motion picture, uh, you know, taking the story of this, of this book and all that happened. They made a major motion picture, this end of the sixth happiness. 
And, uh, and it was a major movie. It starred Ingrid Bergman, one of the biggest actresses at that time. In fact, the only controversy of it was that Ingrid Bergman was just coming out of this well-known crisis, this you know, kind of a, a public scandal. And they were like, well, how can you have somebody like that play a woman like you know, this Gladys Allward, this great hero of the faith? Now, Gladys was a great hero. She had walked away from everything in England, from her family. She moved to China. Uh, she started this large orphanage in China where she was caring for you know, all these kids. And throughout the years, God had, had grown her faith and used her faith. There were numerous times, for example, that they literally didn't know where the meal was coming from. The next meal, they were out of movie or money, they were out of food, and, and yet every time they would pray and God would somehow provide. And so here is this woman of incredible faith, but even spiritual giants can go through periods of crisis and doubt. And, uh, and that's what happened with Gladys. Uh, as the Second World, before the Second World War, actually in the mid-1930s, Japan invaded China. And as they were marching through China, uh, she realized that you know, they, a lot of terrible things were happening and she needed to flee. And she didn't want to just go by herself. She wanted to save the kids that she had been trusted with. And, and other kids then joined. And so she ended up fleeing over the mountains in China, trying to seek free China with over 100 kids and only one other adult assistant. And in the midst of that, as she's going through, they don't have the supplies they need. They don't have anything. She literally came to a breaking point. You know, she's, she's crying out, you know, God, why did you allow this to happen? You know, how, how come you didn't provide a way of escape? You know, we're never going to be able to cross these mountains, you know, on our own. It's helpless. And she literally broke in front of her kids and she cried out, you know, said, God, why have you done this? God's abandoned us. It's impossible. It's not going to work. So even spiritual giants have times of crisis. We're going to see this morning in Matthew chapter 11, another spiritual giant, someone named John the Baptist who went through this kind of crisis as well. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I know John the Baptist. I kind of know the name, but kind of give me a refresher of who he was. Well, let's do that. Okay, we read about, a lot about him in the early parts of all the Gospels. Now, what we see in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there were prophecies about not only the Messiah, but there were numerous prophecies that God would send a, a prophet who would precede the Messiah, someone who would be a forerunner that would kind of prepare the way. Well, John was the one who was that prophesied prophet. And so then we read about his ministry in all the gospels and we're told that he's, you know, he's preaching in the, God, in the desert and he's calling people to repentance for their sins, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And in, that, in that, those stories, we read that this was a guy that had incredible faith, incredible faith about not only God, but specifically about Jesus. In fact, when we read throughout the gospels, we find that throughout most of the gospels, people are trying to figure out who Jesus is and they can't figure it out you know, until very much near the end of his life. But what we find is when we look at John, John figured this out way before anybody else. You know, he had a very clear idea who, who Jesus was. You know, we see it in all the gospels, but look what he says in John chapter one. It says, uh, Jesus is coming to be baptized and, and John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now John's older than Jesus. So when he says he's before me, he's acknowledging, look, this is God. And we see not only that he understands his deity, but he understands the purpose of his ministry. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He understands these things where no one else did. 
We look back in, in verse 34 and he, he states it more clearly. Have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is a man that had incredible faith. But now look at Matthew. If you have your Bibles open, look what we read in Matthew 11 verse two. When Jesus heard that John was, in, or when John heard in prison about the deeds of Jesus, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So he hears about the deeds of Jesus, about the miracles that Jesus had been doing, and we were told that his response is he's saying, are you really the one or did I get it wrong? Suddenly this man who had such faith is suddenly doubting. He's questioning whether Jesus is the one that he thought he was. And so we've gotta say, where does this come from? How do we understand these doubts? Well, part of that is somewhat in his personal circumstances. Because again, you see it right here in verse two. We're told in verse two that he heard this while he was in prison. So he's in prison. Actually, if we go a couple chapters ahead in Matthew 14, we're told why he was arrested. He was preaching against, there was a guy named Herod. He was king, king of that area, kind of anointed by the you know, Roman as the puppet leader. He claimed to be Jewish, claimed to believe in God's word, but yet didn't live that way at all. And so he, at one point in time, married his, you know, he got tired as his wife. He basically took his brother's wife and married her. And John was preaching against that and basically condemning it as something that the Bible said that was wrong. But instead of God now judging Herod for his sinful behavior, Herod turns around and has John arrested, thrown in prison, and John's been there for now months. And I think part of his doubt were circumstances. And he's basically saying, Jesus, if I'm the Messiah, you know, the, the prophet of the Messiah, if I'm the one that's foretelling of your coming and, and you know, your kingdom, now wait a second, why am I in prison? Why am I about to die? But not only was his own circumstances, we're told that he, in verse two, that he heard about the deeds of Jesus. Now here you've gotta say, wait a second, if he's hearing about Jesus' miracles, why would that cause doubt? Well, let's go back to Matthew 3 and look at the prophecies that he said about Jesus, what he expected Jesus to do as the Messiah. Matthew 3, verse seven. You, you know, he's speaking to the religious leaders of that time and he tells them, you broader vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit and keeping repentance. He's calling people to repentance, but he at the same time is, is warning. And he's basically saying, here's great Jesus, grace and forgiveness for those who repent, but for those who don't, hey, wrath is coming, judgment's coming. And this is clear in what he continues to say. So a few verses later in verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And now hear what we see, what's the Holy Spirit? For those of us who believe, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit, we're given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit forgives us, we have relationship with God. What is fire? For those who don't believe, you know, there's judgment. And that's clear in the next verse, he continues. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing fold and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with the unquenchable fire. He's gonna separate the wheat from the chaff, the good, the, you know, the repentant from the unrepentant. Now here's John's problem. He doesn't see Jesus doing any of this. He hears of Jesus doing miracles, he hears of him healing people, but he's sitting there saying, wait a second, I thought you were gonna come and be the king and your power is going to be expressed by overthrowing the godless Romans and, and judging sinful people like Herod and, 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 and rewarding people like me who are doing the right things. And yes, you're showing power, but you're not showing the power the way I thought you're supposed to. It just didn't measure up with the show of strength that he expected. 
And so when we look at this, he comes and, and it becomes a crisis. And he says, are, are you the Messiah or should we wait for another? Did I get it wrong? And I think there might even be somewhat of a challenge. Okay, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, when are you gonna do your thing? When are you gonna reveal yourself? When are you gonna you know, set things right? And I wanna be honest, I, I look at this and say, in part of this, I find some comfort. You know why? Because when I think about my own, my own life, I've gone through periods of doubt, of spiritual crisis. And it's natural in those periods of, these, of doubt and crisis to feel that we're, that we're failing spiritually. You know, almost to think, you know, if I were a real Christian, I wouldn't struggle. If I were a real pastor, I would believe God. I wouldn't have any doubts. And what I love is I read a passage like this and I see this, this spiritual giant and I see that even someone like that experienced crisis and doubt. And, and we're gonna see in a moment, Jesus didn't condemn him for that doubt. See, often we think of doubt as a sign of spiritual failure. And what we see in the Bible is that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, it teaches that there is a danger in it. There's a, a warning in a sense, but, but there's also an opportunity where God may be doing something to grow our faith. So let's look at it and see how it plays out in John's life. How did John re Jesus respond to John? When John comes and, he, and, and here this one who was, you know, announced the beginning of his ministry that showed such great faith, now he's sending people to ask questions. I mean, does Jesus respond, John should know better than that. You know, John knew way back when, why is he doubting now? No, he responds with understanding and grace. Not only that, but there's something really significant in the couple verses after what we read this morning, what I wanna draw your attention to. After this, after he gives the answer to, the, to John's disciples, they leave, Jesus looks and turns to the crowd and look what he says about John the Baptist. He says, truly I say to you, amongst those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now what's significant is that he's saying this right after John has expressed these doubts. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you, John used to be one of the greatest. You know, he, he used to be really a, man, a great prophet, but man, he's been knocked off the spiritual pedestal. Now he's really struggling. No, Jesus speaks these words of affirmation while John is doubting. And he's teaching that all of us can doubt, even spiritual giants, and it doesn't mean that we're failing God when we do. And understand that we have to try to understand why we have doubts and where they come from. You see, our doubts come from times that we just don't understand God. We don't understand his plan. There are times that when we think what we think we know about God and what we expect based on what we think we know doesn't seem to match our experience and what we're feeling. See, that's what's going on here. John expected Jesus to come and to establish justice and to, and to set things right and, and to judge those that were evil, and, but that's not what Jesus is doing. It's, he's not working the way that he expected the Messiah to work. And one of the best passages that I think, that I love to teach about this idea of doubt, where it comes from and how it works is in, in James chapter one. In James chapter one, starting in verse two, he's talking about trials and how we all go through periods of trials. Look what it says, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now notice it doesn't say feel joy, it says count, consider, it's a thought word. We're not gonna feel good all the time, but we know that even when we're in the midst of it, when we're feeling you know, angry, when we're feeling you know, terrible, we realize that there's reason to consider, to know, 
that there's reason for joy. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. God's, we know, we can know that there's reason for joy because God has a purpose. God is only allowing these trials because he's using it to somehow grow our faith so that we can become mature in our faith. I want to point one thing out here though. Notice that at the end of the trial, the purpose is that at the end, then we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. At the end, we're lacking nothing. But how about in the middle? How about while we're going through it? How about before we've learned all the lessons that God wants us to learn? See, in the middle of the trial, we're still lacking. You realize, okay, this is a continuation of the thought. At the end, we'll be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Next verse, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without re reproach, and it will be given to him. And when it says this here, it's written in this, and it's called a second class conditional. It means it's literally, could almost be translated, if any of you lacks wisdom, which you will, it assumes a positive response. And so what God is saying is that we're gonna go through periods of time and we, in the, in the end, we won't lack anything. We'll be mature, but in the middle, we're not mature yet. And so we're gonna lack, we're gonna lack wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to take what we know about God, to take his truth and to apply it to our lives. And so it's saying here that in the midst of trial, we're gonna struggle with that. What do we know of God in this context? God is good, God is powerful, God is in control, God has a good purpose. God only allows that which he can use to grow us. But in the middle of the trial, we're not gonna see that. In the middle of the trial, it won't make sense. And it's assuming that in the trial, won't say if you will, it's assuming that we will, all of us will go, go through periods of time where that will be our reality, where we question, where we doubt, where we struggle. And what I love about this is what it says. Does God beat us up with this? Does he reject us? No, it says he gives generously to all without reproach that he understands that he doesn't, he doesn't judge us for it. Now remember, this is God's word to us. God assumes that there will be times for all of us that we're gonna struggle, that we're gonna doubt, that we're gonna, we're gonna not see him, how he's working according to his word. And th that we're not gonna feel joy, but that we're gonna feel confusion and, and, and grief and, and doubt, maybe even anger. Now why is that? Because part of it is understanding all of what this is teaching about the whole purpose of trial. See, the purpose of trial is that that's the way that God grows our faith. And God wants us to have a more mature faith. How does that happen? The only way for us to grow our faith is he gives us a trial that's bigger than our faith. Let me try to illustrate this. I've used this before. Some of you may have seen it, but it's, I just can't think of a better way to illustrate it. All right, so let's say if I've got here and we say, okay, here's, Here's my faith right now. I've got, I got a pint-sized faith. Okay, God says, I wanna grow your faith so it's a bigger than a pint-sized faith. How does God give me a faith that's bigger than a pint-sized faith? See, if all that ever happens is things that affirm my faith, it, it affirms what I currently have, but it never causes me to stretch. You know how God gives me a quart-sized faith from a pint-sized faith? Is he gives me a quart-sized problem. Now what happens when I pour a quart-sized problem into a pint-sized faith? You know, at first I might be going through the problem and it's like, I've got this, I'm not gonna handle it. And then it continues to go and man, this is getting tough, I'm struggling. And then God continues to pour and what happens? It starts overflowing and it starts making a mess and it starts spilling all over the place and suddenly it's like, you know, there's a crisis. 
Now, what's happening? Did my faith fail? Did, did, is God looking at it and saying, I thought you had enough faith, and did my faith fail? No. God gave me a problem bigger than my faith. He wants me to stretch my faith. If, if, I, if I never had a problem bigger than a pint-sized faith, I would never have to stretch beyond it. But it's only when my faith is overwhelmed and suddenly I don't see God working, God said, okay, now I've got to teach you how to learn and trust me in a new way. That's when you will start to stretch. That's when it will, but, but it's messy in the process. God is, that's why he's saying, if you lack wisdom, which you will, we all will. If you give me a you know, quart-sized problem into a pint-sized faith, it's always gonna spill over. It's always gonna mess, be a mess. We're all gonna doubt, that's normal. And that's not because we've failed God. That may be at times God saying, okay, you've grown so much, I wanna grow you more. And that's why you can look at people like John the Baptist or you know, Gladys, you know, uh, Allward, who are spiritual giants who struggle because we lack wisdom, we lack the ability to figure out, God, these are your promises and, and, and how does this fit? Another way that I notice, you know, that I sometimes talk about it is these trials, they reveal a gap between my theology and my functional beliefs. My theology is what I know about God, my functional belief is what I practically believe at the moment. No, in good times, those things are usually pretty well aligned. Uh, but what happens in trials suddenly those things start to, to deviate. There's a gap. Why? I'm going to give you an example. So I believe that God is good, and I believe that he's loving, and I believe that he's got a good plan, and I believe that he answers prayers. That's my theology, and, and practically in good times I believe it. But then I have a major crisis. A loved one gets sick. There's a crisis in a marriage. You know, there's a crisis with my kids. I lose my job, whatever it would be, and, and suddenly then I pray for God's deliverance, and at first I can handle it, but it continues to get poured out. And as I continue to pray, nothing seems to be happening. And, and then I start saying, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? God, if you are really in charge, then why don't you reward me when I'm doing right? Why do you let the wicked you know, prosper? God, if you really are loving, then why don't you heal this loved one? God, if you are really good, then why do you let this happen? If you're all powerful, then you could just fix this problem like that. Are you really all powerful? And suddenly what I believe about God in my theology and what I'm practically believing in my emotion what I feel based on what I see, they don't match up. You see, that's the lack of wisdom. That's when I have a hard time aligning what I know about God and applying it to my life. And we all are gonna go through that. There are gonna be periods in our life where God doesn't make sense, where he gives us a quart-sized problem into our pint-sized faith, and we're gonna struggle. Now, in that, there are dangers. And, and there's a dangers to watch out, you know, that we can, the question is how are we gonna handle that? But well, one wrong way to handle it is there's a danger of, of looking at that and thinking short-sighted and, and, and making presumptions about God and therefore rejecting him based on that. See, when we assume that God isn't working the way we expect him to, or he's not working in our time, we can jump to the conclusion, therefore he's not trustworthy. He's failed. We're short-sighted in part because we're just seeing the here and now. And we're looking at God hasn't worked and he hasn't worked up till now. Okay, well, his story is a lot longer than our story. You know, we're just judging here. Don't just judge based on the here and now. Recognize that God isn't done with this story. Give him time to play it out. Not only that, but it's presumptuous because we, in that time, we assume that we know what's best. We're assuming and saying, God, this is what's best and if you really love me, you would do this. 
Do we really know that our presumption is right? Is it possible that God has a plan that's other than our plan? I want to tell you, in my own experience, he usually has a plan that's other than my plan. And God's plan is not always what makes sense to me. It isn't always easy. But in the long run, I've seen it's always right. It's always good. And it's foolish for us to respond in that anger and that short-sightedness and presumption and say, well, because God isn't doing this, therefore I reject him. I've seen people do that. I've seen people that God hasn't worked the way they expect, the way they demand, and they just get mad they walk away from God. No, God hasn't called us. John could have done that. John could have just, man, Jesus, he could have just walked away. He's not the Messiah, but that's not what John did. The second danger, uh, the wrong way to deal with, it, with this doubt is, is that, we, uh, that we are fearful of the risk of shame. And therefore, since we're possibly shamed in, about our the idea of doubt, we deny that we have it. See, again, this is where a lot of people think that doubt is a sign of spiritual failure. And because we don't want to admit to other people that we're doubting God, that we're questioning, that we're struggling, we never admit it to each other, to other people. And because we never admit it, we never ask for help, and we struggle on our own. And, uh, and oftentimes that becomes fatal. I, I, it, sometimes it's even we don't even admit it to ourselves. I've dealt with people, countless people over the years that will talk about, you know, crisis or things in their life and things that have gone wrong. And, and you know, there's all these things that have gone wrong. And, and then they'll kind of tell me in the midst of that, says, well, but I still believe in God. You know I, I, you know, I don't have doubt. You know, I believe that God's there. And I'm listening and I'm saying, no, you have doubt. And one of the challenges of counseling is getting them to acknowledge the doubt, the anger that they have towards God. Because not until you do that can you ever have God heal. It's almost like if we go to a doctor and we go and we say, well, okay, well, I've got all this pain in my chest. I've got, you know, I've got, you know, I've got this pain over here. I don't know what it is, but you go to the doctor. I'm doing fine. You, know, you gotta admit the problem. See, you know, I've got this big cut. No, you've gotta show the doctor the cut. You've gotta expose it so he can heal it. God knows everything. But at the same point, if we're hiding it, see, God's saying, okay, I'm not gonna be able to deal with it until you agree with me that it's a problem, until you expose it but still so many of us struggle because we're afraid that if we admit that we're doubting God, people look down at us, God will look down at us. If we're angry with God, if we admit it, we're, angry, you know, we're like, man, you say you're angry with God, I'm gonna back away, God might strike you with you know, lightning. God's, you, know, you can't say that you're angry with God. All right, let me speak directly to anyone who that may be you. You know, if you're struggling with feelings about doubt, maybe you're struggling even with feelings about anger towards God and you're afraid to admit it to him, you're afraid that somehow if you say that to God, that God's going to be disappointed, that God's going to get you. You're, well, let me, here's the secret I want to wish, share with you, right? If that's you, God already knows how you feel. You know, if you're saying, I can't tell him I'm angry, God knows you're angry. You're not informing him. It's not like he sits back and said, you're angry with me? I'm shocked, you know, I can't believe it. I thought you were mature. No, God's sitting there saying, all right, now, now we're both on the same page. I've been trying to show you that for years. Now that we both agree, now let's deal with it. Now I can bring healing. See, God knows these things. See, that's what's happening with John the Baptist. Is that he could have, in a sense, said, okay, I'm gonna be shameful. If there was anybody that had reason to shame, he publicly went out in front of you know, thousands of people. This is the Messiah. 
And for him to now publicly say, I'm not kind of questioning that, he could have in shame just hid it, but he didn't. What did he do? He did what God called him to do, and that was to deal with it. God calls us to deal with it in a way that, that will allow God to grow that, our faith. Again, going back to this whole picture of James, you know, we sit, what's happening? God is giving us a quart-sized problem and pouring into a pint-sized faith, and in the midst of this, we're gonna struggle. And, and he calls us to be, come to him. If any of you lacks wisdom, give, you know, come to God who gives generously to all without finding fault. What does he say? We come to him, we ask, and he doesn't find fault, and he will give it to us. See, it's a doubting. But we have to admit it to God who doesn't judge us for that, and then honestly struggle with him. Be honest about our doubts, honest about our struggle, admit it before him, and come and say, okay, God, I need the wisdom that I don't have. I need the ability to understand this because I don't understand it. And that's what I love about John. He doesn't deny it to save faith. He's really open. He sends people publicly asking Jesus, saying, Jesus, I'm doubting. And Jesus said, okay, I'm, in a sense, I'm proud of you for admitting that. And I love, we see this in Jesus' response. Look, look at what we see here. Again, first of all, Jesus doesn't get angry. He doesn't look at it and say, you're the one that was for, you know, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't express disappointment. Instead, he literally affirms. He affirms John, he affirms, you know, his struggle, he affirms, you know, the, the, the struggle in the midst of that. Now, part of that is what do we fear? We fear reproof, we fear correction, we fear disappointment. No, he affirms, he doesn't, reprove us for our doubt. Again, go back to what we saw a few minutes ago. John sends these messengers. A few verses later, right after they leave, Jesus then says, okay, here, let me tell you what I think about John. This guy that just expressed these doubts, truly I say to you, amongst uh, those born of women, there is is no one greater than John the Baptist. You know, this is one of the greatest men ever. Not before he doubt, no, in, in, in the midst of his doubts because the way that he's dealing with his doubts actually is a sign of maturity. His doubts aren't a sign of immaturity, it's coming and struggling before Christ is a sign of maturity. Secondly, John, or Jesus teaches John and us that we need to focus on what God is doing. The fact is in life, there are times in crisis. Why do we struggle? Because we don't see God doing what we expect him to do. We're gonna look at that and say, I expect that, I expect that. And what we tend to do is we come, become fixated on the things that God isn't doing. And you say, no, I want you to focus on what God is doing and not on what he isn't doing. See, that's what's tempting to do. Now I look at again, he comes and he asks, you know, are you the Messiah? And look at his response in verses four and five. And Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. You know, John, Jesus doesn't give a direct answer. He says, okay, look, and come to the right conclusion. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that if you remember back in chapter, in verse two of chapter 11, part of John's crisis at first was that he was questioning, I'm hearing about Jesus' miracles and that's causing me to question. So why is it that Jesus now says, well, look at my miracles. He's already, here knows about those things. Well, here's why. The way that Jesus says it clearly is making reference to prophecies in Isaiah 35 and 61. And Jesus knew that, that John knew these prophecies. 
And so he's saying, okay, you know all the things that I'm doing. Let me remind you that these are the things that the Old Testament said Messiah would do. Now, John's looking at it and saying, yeah, but the Bible also says that Messiah is gonna come and establish the kingdom and he's gonna judge and he's gonna, and Jesus said, I'm gonna do that eventually. That's part of, but what I want you to see is not the things that I'm not doing. I want you to fixate on the things that I am doing. See, John's looking at it saying, you're not establishing the kingdom. Yeah, but I'm doing the miracles that the Bible said that I would do. And in the same way in our life, my friends, we're gonna have times that we just don't see God working. That, that you know, we have these promises and we're, God, you are doing this. But all of us could look back and say, but he's working here and he's working here and he's providing this. I can look back in my time in life for those, especially those that are, have some maturity, all the times that God has provided when we didn't see him before, but that should give us every reason to have confidence going forward. The third thing that he tells John and us is that we need to embrace Jesus for who he is. You see, when you think about people then and as people now, they reject Jesus in large part because they expect him to be someone other than who he is. And, and it says, well, we need to embrace him for who he is and, and not, he isn't the God that we expect or that we want. John was having doubts because he was expecting a political Messiah. He was expecting certain things. You know when I find people today? Well, the Jesus I believe in, I'll hear this all the time, the Jesus I believe in would do this or you'd do this. Was well, that the Jesus that you want or is that the Jesus that is expressed in the Bible? You see, it's not a matter of what I want to believe about Jesus. It's Jesus as he revealed himself in the Bible. And a lot of people, they're going to come and we're going to struggle. Look at what, what Jesus says in verse 6. He said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know, what's interesting is that's pretty much the same thing he said to his disciples on the night of his betrayal. Okay, you're going to be, I'm going to be arrested. You're going to see these things. Blessed are those who aren't offended by me. Now, think about the disciples. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Because Jesus wasn't the Messiah he expected. And all the other ones, he wasn't either. You know, they didn't see him being arrested and crucified like this, but they were saying, okay, we're not going to insist that you're the God that I want, that I expect. I'm gonna embrace Jesus for who he is. And when it disagrees with my opinions, with my feelings, I'm gonna realize that, no, I need to adapt to what I feel and think about God to what God has said about himself. The last thing that he's really saying in this is that we need to find Jesus in our power and our poverty. Because again, what Jesus, John is saying is, okay, when are you gonna come? When are you gonna judge? When are you gonna look at Jesus' response? He says, tell, tell them what you see in here, that blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. He expected God to come in power. And Jesus said, I'm gonna show my power, but my power is ministering to the poor, the blind, the broken, the dead. Now here's what it's saying. If you want to experience God's power, I have to associate with the blind, the lame, the dead, you know, the lepers. Why? Because I realize that's who I am, spiritually. I'm coming saying, God, do this, give me victory. No, I've got to come in a humility of recognizing that I'm one that needs Jesus' healing. I need to come in the humility of saying, God, here I come in my brokenness and my, and my, you know, and my, and my sinfulness and my spiritual deadness and my, I'm blind and God, I come there. And when I look at, I want to see your power, the greatest power is in what I need you to do in my life. But that starts by coming and acknowledging, you know, here's what I need to do. I come acknowledging my, my weakness and my brokenness. 
and ask for your forgiveness and ask for your grace, and that's where he meets us. But in the middle of that, we're gonna struggle, and that's where I wanna encourage you. You're gonna, we're gonna, that's part of the walk. But don't let that, don't let that get you down. Don't let that beat you up. See, even a spiritual giant like John the Baptist, Jesus said, the greatest men born, born of woman. Or, or you think of, again, the great missionary her, you know, um, heroes, uh, Gladys Allward, you know, this woman who did such incredible things, had this mature faith that, you know, that was taking care of hundreds of kids, and yet, as she's crossing the mountain, she literally, her faith broke. She's looking at this and saying, God, why, why did you allow this to happen? Why haven't you provided a way of escape? God, why have you abandoned us? In the midst of that, she literally turned to her one, you know, one additional leader and said, I give up. You know, God has abandoned us. This is impossible. And one of the little girls that was there with her, a 13-year-old, you know, looked at her and said, but, but Miss Albert, don't you remember that you know, Moses and, and God used Moses to guide the children of Israel through the Red Sea? And she looked at her and says, but I'm not Moses. And the little girl responded back and said, no, you're not, but Jehovah is still God. And sometimes it's even out of the mouth of babes that we're reminded these things as, as those that are mature, these basic truths that it's so easy to lose sight of. And God did bring them across the mountains and provided, but God wasn't done doing the miracles because he not only brought them through, but and, and the kids that came through that, many of them came to know Christ, and, and it became this incredible story, and God used it in ways that Gladys could have never imagined, because it became a story that she wrote in a book, and God never, she could never imagine that, that it would somehow get the, the attention of a, people in Hollywood, and they would wanna make this major movie telling her story, and through the telling of that story, millions of people's faith was encouraged. But that's not all. Because it's such a big movie, they chose Ingrid Bergman, one of the, you know, the, the leading stars of Hollywood of that day to play Gladys. But in that process, here was a woman who was known for scandal, but in that process, she was so moved by Gladys's life and story that she decided see, after the movie was done, she wanted to take a special trip out to Taiwan and, and meet Gladys. Taiwan, Gladys had moved out there and was doing an orphanage in Taiwan. And, and so she flies out there in literally a, in a couple weeks before she got there, before they could let her know, Gladys had, had passed away. And, um, and, and her, Gladys's coworker, Kathleen Smith, uh, saw how disappointed she was, you know, Ingrid Bergman was, and, and said, you know, do you wanna see the room where Gladys had lived? And she said, yes. And so they got in the room, and Ingrid got in that room and fell down at her bed and started to just cry and weep saying, I'm unworthy to play a woman like this. My life isn't worthy. I'm not worthy to play this woman of God. And as, as she cried out, and, um, Gladys' friend Kath, Kathleen started to talk to her and said, no, but it's not about being worthy. It's not about being worthy. It's about coming to God and being poor and being weak and being blind and, and coming in our weakness. And she started to tell her about Jesus Christ and how Jesus came to die for her sins and how that was the true message of Gladys' life. And in that, Miracle of miracles, Ingrid Bergman accepted Christ because God wasn't done working miracles. My friends, God isn't done working miracles. And we've got to realize that in the midst of the crisis, we're going to experience doubts. We're not going to always understand. But God's okay with that. He's saying, I'm just growing you a bigger faith. 
And, and that's okay, I'd invite you to do that and don't be ashamed of it. No, be like John the Baptist, come and honest, struggle honestly, because God says, whenever we do, he will give us wisdom without finding fault. We need to do this together. And part of that is focusing on what God is doing and celebrating what he's doing and believe that we're only seeing a piece of the story in what he's gonna do through even our crisis goes beyond what any of us can think or imagine to his power that is at work within our lives. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.